think about the the wider ability of doctors to use the patient's genetic and genomic information as part of that routine medication or medical workup, but also the improved ability uh, to predict which treatments are going to work and for those specific patient populations. Welcome to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. I'm Maria Whitman, Principal at ZS, and this episode is part of our series on precision medicine. Today, we're talking with Dennis Flannelly. Dennis is an industry veteran of more than 20 years. He started his career as a sales rep with Merck in 1998 and then turned to the marketing side. He made a pivot into immunodiagnostics, working first for Thermo Fisher and then for Perkin Elmer. Then in 2019, he made the move back to Merck, where for the last three years, he's been the head of precision medicine for U.S. Oncology. Dennis is a speaker here with me at ZS's 2022 Impact Summit, and we're talking live at the meeting in Boston. Welcome, Dennis. Thanks for joining us today. No, thank you very much for uh, letting me come and join at the meeting. It's a, it's a nice session. I'm looking forward to the discussions later today. I am as well. So, Dennis, you've worked in so many roles, both immunodiagnostics companies, and now you're back at Merck leading precision medicine. Can you tell me how you define precision medicine based on your experiences? In my opinion, and that's my opinion, not uh, the opinion of my employer, I think when you look at precision medicine, there's a couple ways to look at it, but at at the highest level, it's a a form of medicine that uses information about a person's own genes or their proteins to prevent and diagnose or treat uh, the medication. In my discipline, specifically in oncology, uh, which is my current discipline, precision medicine uses information about a person's tumor, and to help use that information, make a diagnosis, plan that treatment, Importantly, uh, how well that prescription may be working for the patient, ultimately to make prognosis. There's all these great things that can happen from uh, the information that's coming to that patient and the physician, and precision medicine helps compile all that data to say, here's the plan of action we're going to do for that. So it's a really exciting space to be in. So many great things and a great vision. How is that? How is your vision translating? Uh, you know, what's what's Mark thinking about as you're as you're planning out precision medicine? Yeah, I think it, it's it's. Primarily in a similar way, when, when we look at precision medicine, we, we try to look at that patient as the center in everything that we do. And when we say that, it's ensuring that every appropriate patient, uh, they're tested and they have an opportunity based upon those results to have a safe and efficacious experience with the medication. And if we're doing that right, then that patient has the best opportunity for the greatest outcome working with their physician with their treatment journey. And my role specifically within Merck is really ensuring that across that value chain that we're active in it, we're helping to shape the space, but also working with our partners to ensure that the access to the technologies there, the data that's generated is usable and actionable for the healthcare system uh, to ensure that the appropriate testing is there for those patients going forward. That's a big job. It's interesting. It's a lot of work, but a great team, uh, a great team there working on it. I'm so glad. One of the things you and I have talked about that I, I really appreciated is your perspective that there's a capability and a mindset difference that's needed if biopharma really wants to design, develop, and deliver on precision medicines. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. No, I, I think the the ability to realize that that vision of precision medicine with the appropriate therapy for the appropriate patient, there's a, a lot of unique capabilities and, and really re- requires an understanding and navigating a a very vast ec- ecosystem of data. Uh, the data you think of here, you look at a patient from whether you're getting screening, screening information, genetic data, genomic data, coupled with now wearables, coupled with uh, additional diagnostic testing, coupled with the patient's history and symptoms, a lot of information is coming at the system from that. So the ability to really navigate and individualize that treatment uh, for that patient is a very important capability. But at the same time, when you think about the business models that are being developed in this area is, is impressive as well. 
because so much data is now out there, how do you monetize that data? How do you use it to advance the next stage of therapies in development? How do you ensure you've got enough diversity of patients within your development programs to ensure that as you're having medications come to market, that it allows for that personalized medication from that standpoint? So a lot of cool areas in that, but when you think about just next-gen sequencing testing alone, the amount of information that's coming back to physicians, now you're thinking about what clinician decision support do you need for them? What uh, information needs to be on that report so they can have that dialogue with the patient at a level that's consistent with that, with understanding information for that patient as well. So many great thoughts to unpack there. I mean, it, you know, first of all, the data that we in the life sciences industry have to even start with is so vast. And I think sometimes we're not even scratching the surface. And now here's a, a system of developing precision that requires us to actually unlock that data in very different ways. And then on the physician side, you know, what we saw in some of our research this year is that it doesn't matter if you're an oncologist, a cardiologist, a PCP, you know, more than 70 percent of the time you're looking at all this and saying, I want to use it. I don't know how to use it. There's not a standard yet in telling me how to use it. So um, how, how are you thinking about that clinical decision support and, and getting them through that, that barrier? Yeah, I think that when I personally look at it is that at education element, that's you got to start there and understand what's the, the baseline, what's the gap that that, uh, that healthcare system or the gap that the physician or even the gap that the laboratory is, is working through to close and ensuring that it, the, the information, the education is clearly laid out to improve that understanding so that that discussion can take place. Because, I mean, we can sit there and think you get a, a great amount of information and you're not sure what to do with it. Now you're, you're going to use it to talk to a patient. If you're not comfortable with that data, to begin with, how can you have a very good, complete discussion with a patient that's looking to you, and in, in this sense, as a physician, as the hero? How do I ensure that I'm giving the information? So that comfort, confidence level is really important. And many physicians get through the full residency, and there's not a lot of time that's dedicated to uh, genetic and genomics in that training. So it's really you're closing that gap real time for these physicians that are very busy in systems that are overloaded with patients coming through the door. It has to start at the beginning. So lots of innovation across the space. Um, some of the most exciting is in diagnostics. But overall, what are you ex- most excited about? I think the the piece that gets me most excited is the the long-term benefit that position, that precision medicine really lays out. I mean, you think about the, the wider ability of doctors to use the patient's genetic and genomic information as part of that routine medication or medical workup. Uh, for that that patient, but also the improved ability uh, to predict which treatments are going to work and for those specific patient populations. I think those are two pieces that uh, that really excite me. And if you just think about the the ability of sample availability, in many cases, uh, tissue samples, the, the gold standard run this, but now you're looking at technologies such as non-invasive uh, testing, which is uh, circulating tumor DNA, or many people think of it as liquid biopsy, where you, out of a, a venous draw, you can pull the plasma and run a lot of this testing on it. Yes, it's technology that's that's being developed real time, but as that data becomes more and more robust, you're given another option potentially for patients in more non-invasive fashion where you're really opening up a lot of the rural areas, which really opens up that uh, potential for precision medicine more completely in rural areas, where today it's really centered around those key regional centers, key academic centers, and really the value of the full patient pool, as you know, is, is as you get to the broader community-based rural areas as well. So I think about this a lot, you know, this this can we access and when you lower a barrier like cost or like complexity of the technology and you make it more accessible, you're still not necessarily always getting um, the equivalent standard of care across patients. We talked about this morning, it takes 17 years to get standard of care. And so you bring up this example of the diagnostics barrier. Um, 
where we seem to be doing some things right right now, like breast, colorectal cancer, but then there's areas like lung cancer where we've got massive gaps, even though we know there are targeted therapies available for patients. So what do we need to do about it? Any lessons that you've seen in the places it's working? Yeah, I think the, the one of the key pieces is is really defined uh, screening programs. I mean, if you look in, you mentioned lung cancer, you look at uh, lung cancer screening, if you look at low-dose CT scans as the primary screen there, versus where you think about uh, breast cancer, you look at mammograms being your primary screening mechanism. As we just talked about, when you look at the non-invasive area of liquid biopsy potential or screening earlier, going in through a low-dose CT scan might not be most common for most patients. You might not be able to access it. If you look at technology such as that, where you got uh, companies such as Grail, which is becoming part of Illumina, you look at Thrive now, part of Exact Science, they're investing a lot of money in this area to build that robustness of data to screen those areas. But it's, that's a starting point. The key point is how do I identify that patient from a screen? Who is high risk and how do I pull them in quickly? Because at the end of the day, the best chance for the most successful treatment outcome and most successful long-term, most successful long-term outcome is that early identification. That's really where, when we look at that piece, what we can learn from breast cancer, what we can learn from those defined programs, uh, such as colorectal, is that, is getting that patient defined early identification, pull them in, those high risk, and really monitoring and managing them appropriately. Thank you for that. Lots of money and investment in precision medicine, 30% more effort against clinical trials to develop personalized therapeutics, um, you know, many more types of technologies. What should biopharma be focused on? you know, if we really want to advance the field. We'll bring these products to market, but what do we need to focus on? Yeah, I think the, there, there's a couple of areas uh, from that standpoint. I mean, with precision medicine and really allowing the doctors to select treatment based on uh, the genetic and genomic understanding of a patient's disease uh, to create those personalized treatment plans, there's, uh, in oncology specifically, if you look at it, is really being able to understand those genetic changes that can cause... Um, the cancer to grow and spread, and how these uh, are very different from each patient across the value, the the various uh, stages from that. And there's patterns that are associated with that testing and ultimate outcomes. And I think to your your question, there's just gaps right now in the trends associated with testing, treatment, and outcomes that need to be closed. And when we think about uh, the biopharma space specifically, being able to help uh, bring these disparate parties together is really important because at, at one end you got the biopharma with the treatment, the front end you have the screening with one entity, you have the diagnostic testing to stage and, and confirm the, the cancer type, and all that data is in those disparate paces. So being able to bring it together to show that full end-to-end stream is going to be valuable not only for the, the highest academic center but also uh, the rural geographies because now you're showing a way in which precision medicine can be practiced, but importantly, what are the outcomes the costs associated with doing that, which is very important for the system, very important for payers, but ultimately the benefit for the patients is sitting there as well. And it's going to take a lot of collaboration it to will. make that happen. It will. No one can do it alone. And that's the worry in the space is that everyone's getting after trying to do it alone to be the first mover so others follow along versus saying, all right, I was thinking about um, the iPod as an example, right? Everyone knew the solution and they'd be there, but you had Sony doing it one way, you had RCA doing another, you had the computer people doing it one way. And it took Apple to say, all right, we can just house it here and we can work from there. Yeah. And then you had, the, you had the solution that everyone had an opportunity for, and then it really changed the game. I keep thinking, uh, though, who's going to be that catalyst in, in health? Because I, I, I worry it's not going to come from in industry. It's going to have to come from someone. Well, I think it, it's a, it's a combination. You need the advocacy behind it. You need the, the trust behind it. Because yeah. uh, many, uh, you know, there's many of the... The companies that are that are movers in the space that are generating the the data and importantly combining it because if you understand that 
that journey from screening through the ultimate outcome, I mean, that's really what you're trying to understand. And what are the, the differences in those respective mutations, especially in cancer, which is leading the way in this space. But the better you're able to do that, the the better off the overall community is going to be. And that helps translate not to just oncology. That brings you to other areas. You think about uh, allergies, you think about asthma, you think about COPD as your respiratory areas. A lot of those are, are showing signs that uh, there's genetic uh, abnormalities in those areas as to who's reacting, who's not, who's who's anaphylactic, who's, who's not in the case of allergies. It's a really neat space. Yeah. So, Dennis, you've seen this from all angles, and you've seen what's needed from the different stakeholders involved. What is your advice for biopharma executives that are, you know, pushing through programs in precision medicine? I believe, as, as you just touched on, it's, it's the ability to play a role in helping to combine the data uh, across these cohorts to really maximize the impact, not just in, in a local geography, but across the, in our case, the United States, but also the global scale. I think that ability, when you just look at the diverse streams of data, uh, whether that's genomic data, uh, whether that's social determinants of health information and, and environmental exposure, EHR data, wearables, which are now there, those uh, ability to bring those disparate data points together across those cohorts is very important. But uh, as we touched on a little bit earlier, it's also about improving the diversity inclusion in the science, in the development of those uh, trials. Because at the end of it, you can have the, the greatest evidence generation in the real world, but what's coming through the clinical programs is that giving a, an appropriate representation of the, the environment that these products are being launched into and the treatments that are available. Uh, those are two areas that, that I really think, uh, as we look at it from a biopharma perspective and just the health uh, science perspective, that are really critical data and ultimately ensuring that our, our trials and our, our science is really incorporating the, the general population. That actually sparks a, another question for me because we have the trials and we have the real world gener generated data uh, at the commercial point. There's been a lot more focus in the last years on the integrated evidence planning throughout that journey and how do you continuously supplement. Is that a place where we can lean in also to, to try to pull this together? I believe that is an area. I think also when you, if you just look at the social determinants of health within that, there's so many factors within that that you can play on. You can look at race, you can look at economic status, ethnicity, geography, education, uh, health literacy, as well as social support. I mean, all these facets go into that that understanding of that full entity because you're not talking to the same patient at the same time, the, the same caregiver at the same time. They're all unique individuals that have their unique background coming into that that discussion where uh, if a physician in the system is fully ready to have that dialogue, we need to ensure that that patient and that, that caregiver is also ready to have that discussion. So then you truly get the change that you're, you're working towards in this space. And that's a big theme here now is recognizing that it's so heterogeneous that every patient is carving their own experience and every physician's, you know, along the journey with them to some degree. Dennis, thank you so much for this. Um, I, I have one question that I ask all my guests at the end. Um, so if you could change one thing about healthcare, what would it be? It's a very good question. Uh, one, there are so many areas, but I think the the one thing, if if we really look at, it, is it, it's today still the focus is on sick sick care being the primary. But I think if we we say how can we drive that change, drive the change that we want uh, for our family members, for our communities, it's really increasing that focus on preventative care. I mean that area is so important, and and as I mentioned, in my space in oncology, the chance for the the greatest outcome. Regardless of regardless of cancer, is the earlier I'm identified, the earlier I'm pulled in as a high risk patient, the best chance for survival I have is in that earlier stage, and that really starts with the preventative care. Because there are treatments out there for all the stages uh, that can handle that, but it starts with first knowing what you're working and you're going up against, and that's where the increased focus on preventative care is really important. And that's what we all want, right? Healthier lives that start and stay. 
Yep. Thank you, Dennis, so much for joining me. Yep. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. We invite you to subscribe and leave an iTunes review. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.